Welcome to Shireside Chats, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring conversations with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that made them who they are. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today we're about to get G-L-A-M-O-R-O-U-S. Yeah. Now, whether you grew up in the mid-2000s or simply know how to spell, that's right, we're about to get pretty glamorous. We're talking with Fergie. No, I'm just kidding. That would be ridiculous for a third episode, but we are talking with someone who's very impressive and who does know quite a bit about glamour. Cindy Levy is a journalist, media leader, and co-founder and CEO of The Meteor, a feminist media company which launched in 2021. A cultural critic who appears frequently on TV and at live events, Cindy is a senior fellow at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Center, the former editor-in-chief of both Glamour and Self magazines, the force behind barrier-breaking initiatives like Glamour Women of the Year and The Girl Project, and the author or producer of numerous books, including the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Together We Rise, about the making of the Women's March and the author or producer of numerous books, including the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Together We Rise, about the making of the Women's March. Her awards and honors include recognition from the White House and the United Nations, as well as an Emmy and multiple national magazine awards. Now, as a woman working in media, I always geeked out whenever I had the chance to be in the same room as Cindy. But after getting to know her pretty recently... I learned that she loves to geek out almost as much as I do. And today, Cindy and I will be geeking out over one of her fandoms in the Shire, and we'll be discussing women in journalism through the lens of Brenda Starr Reporter, a comic strip about a glamorous, adventurous reporter that ran from 1940 to 2011. While there are no spoiler warnings, there is a mild trigger warning. We do cover the Me Too movement with brief mentions of reporting on sexual assault and harassment in the workplace. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder that this is an independently produced podcast that I created to teach the world about fandom and fan activism. You can support Fandom Forward and this podcast by visiting fandomforward.org slash donate or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash fandomforward. Now, on to the show. Cindy, welcome to Shireside Chats. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for having me, Sabrina. Thank you for joining us. I think that you were one of the first people I told about this project, and you were a cheerleader from the start, which I really appreciate. <laughs> I have in the past been a literal cheerleader, so I, uh, <laughs> I got some skills. <laughs> me too. What was your um, cheerleading position? Oh, I don't think I had a position. We weren't, oh, they that, didn't... We, weren't we weren't that fancy, although I, I was always really short. So I was I was the top of the pyramid kind of person. Oh, so you were, yeah, you were a flyer. We we oh. were a very lo-fi cheerleading squad. <laughs> I was so excited to have you on the show. Obviously, your bio is chock full of amazing accolades and accomplishments. And before we talk about what you're up to now, I just had to say that. I was a really big fan of women's magazines when I was growing up. This is probably really silly to imagine, but from the age of six or seven, probably through age 12 or 13, I would just escape into all of these different magazines because they made me feel like a grown up. My mother is going to be really shocked to hear that I would read like Cosmo and Glamour and, and you know, Vogue because I, I wanted the sex and dating tips because I wanted to know what what grown up life was all about. I'm sorry, mom. 
I, and now I'm like thinking of all the things that we printed that were definitely not appropriate for six-year-old Sabrina. And I'm sorry, uh, sorry to you and sorry for your mom, but thank you. That's nice to hear. It was one of those things where my mom would get her hair done and they had all of these magazines at the at the hair salon and I would just get lost in this world of literal glamour, I guess. But of all of the magazines that I read, glamour really stood out to me because it was, I think, the most realistic depiction of women and the most empowering depiction of women. And my childhood actually intersected with I think your earlier days as editor-in-chief of Glamour Magazine. So things like Women of the Year program and many, many articles, you know, none of which I could recall right now, but I, I remembered how the magazine made me feel. And it kind of planted the seeds of feminism in my mind as a young girl. That's so nice to hear. Yeah, I had a boss. I worked at Glamour when I was right out of college in a bunch of different jobs and then subsequently left and, and came back in the editor job. But one of my first bosses was at the time editor-in-chief of Glamour, Ruth Whitney, super legendary woman, a little bit terrifying, incredibly talented editor. And I remember once that a reporter asked her if she was the feminist and she said, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> and, you know, I really appreciated that. I kind of felt the same way. And it was nice to feel like it, instead of like forcing my feminism on a magazine that might have been about something else, that there was a sort of heritage there of editors who were interested in all kinds of issues and in hopefully making readers feel better, not worse about themselves after they finished reading, which is not something that I, I know I personally experienced from a lot of magazines. Yeah, it really felt like the the feminism was kind of implicit to the magazine rather than this explicit thing. But but you could see it, you could feel it. And that has led you down this path to co-founding a company called The Meteor, which is an incredibly eclectic and wonderful group of some of the world's greatest journalists, artists, filmmakers, media leaders. And this collective was founded to advance gender and racial justice and equity in the media and, and broadly. So tell me a little bit more about The Meteor's mission and why the organizational structure is a little bit different from what you usually see in media. We're a media company that was founded to tell great stories across a lot of different platforms that have to do with women's lives. And our first editorial idea meeting, if this kind of situates it, was in Gloria Steinem's living room, which was like incredible in all the ways that you would expect. And she said, this is where we started Ms. Magazine. And I mean, it, like in her literal living room. And so our kind of challenge to ourselves was like, well, what would it look like to be a media company, a media brand and outlet for the movement that we're in right now, which is so varied and diverse, but also kind of seismic, right? Women and non-binary people are at this point where they're looking at everything in their lives from like our political systems, our workplaces, how we raise our children, how we think about our relationships and money and everything in our lives. And so those issues certainly come up at lots of different women's magazines and women's digital media brands, but they're always, as I know from my own experience at Glamour, they're often sort of the garnish on the plate as opposed to the entree. And so we wanted to start a company where creating storytelling, whether that's podcasts or written pieces in newsletters or live journalism spoken on stage at an event, 
you know, telling stories that have to do with all the ways that we, and by we, I mean feminists broadly, not just women, but also people of all genders are questioning the world we live in. So that's what we do. We make podcasts, we produce newsletters, please subscribe. You can subscribe at our website, which is wearethemeteor.com or follow us on Instagram or anywhere else. And we also produce a lot of live events in New York and LA primarily so far, but we're looking to go national later this year. And um, it's, it's a lot of fun. You were asking about the structure. We have this collective of folks who are journalists. You and I met through one of our Meteor founding members, Dahlia Lithwick, the brilliant legal journalist and Supreme Court expert. We have filmmakers, part of the Meteor artists, and kind of cultural activists like Paola Mendoza and Sarah Sophie Flicker. Camila Forbes, who's the executive producer of the Apollo, is one of our founding members. And so we work with them both to kind of set direction for the company, like what should we be doing and how should we be doing it, but also to develop work. So we produce a podcast that is hosted by one of our collective members, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Um, We're about to release another podcast featuring another collective member that I will not yet name here. We've done stage shows that Rebecca Carroll and Camila Forbes do. So anyway, it's just this great hive of interesting people from lots of different disciplines who are committed to the idea of building something together. And so I feel really lucky that I get to do that with all of them. Yeah, and I should add that Emily Ladau is one of the members of the collective. And Emily, if you didn't hear it already, was one of our first guests who joined us to talk about disability rights activism and Gilmore Girls, which was really fun. Amazing. I love that. Yeah. Yes, Emily, Emily is brilliant. And she's one of the people who like she was there at our very first meetings as we were trying to figure out what we did and what we stood for. And she said the most amazing thing. She said, I've always been for feminism, but feminism hasn't always been for me, meaning that she felt like disability rights were not on the table or part of the discussion in a lot of feminist outlets. And so, you know, that really shaped how we started to think about just a broader definition of what are feminist issues. One of the things that I really love about making this podcast is that it's about joyful, cozy activism. So I have to ask, Cindy, are you ready to get cozy? I am. I am super cozy, Sabrina. I'm I'm ready. Are you drinking anything interesting today? I am. I'm drinking. I'm actually drinking a cup of coffee that has been growing ever colder next to my laptop for the last four hours. So maybe that's not such a cozy image. It hasn't like a skin hasn't formed on the top of it or anything yet. But <laughs> um, but if I were going to be really on brand for what we were going to talk about, I do have also a water glass on my desk that features Brenda Starr, reporter. Oh, my God. That is so cute. Um because- Look how good her hair is. Her hair is so good. We can talk about that later. I think I say at least once per episode, this is an audio medium, but we can describe what this amazing um, fanish artifact looks like. Um, But before we get to Brenda Starr, I wanted to ask you, you grew up in the DMV suburbs, right? Like the DC area? 
I never call it the DMV. That sounds like appropriately yeah. militaristic. Yeah, I grew up in Northern Virginia. I grew up in McLean, fun fact, home of the CIA. And <laughs> yeah, it was. it is a suburb of DC and now I think really functions like a suburb of DC, but it was really pretty Southern when I grew up there and felt like it was a million miles away from the actual city of uh, District of Columbia. So I'm picturing young, like teen Cindy. When I first told you about this podcast, I asked you, what was the pop culture that you loved and how did you engage with it? Are you someone who's a big fan of things? And you actually told me a few stories that struck me as quite fanish, particularly about Bruce Springsteen. And we won't get too in-depth on that, but but you used to write out the lyrics to every new Bruce Springsteen song from the radio. Yeah, that's rest. what happens when a bookworm and total nerd becomes a fan of something. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was a fan of a lot of different things growing up. I mean, first of all, as a really young kid, I was just a total... I really was a complete bookworm. I loved to read. It was like the only place where I really felt like I was finding my people. And, you know, I would just immerse myself in in books. And my mom talked about how she took me to the Grand Canyon on some family vacation. And I literally sat on the edge of the Grand Canyon and was like reading a book. <laughs> I loved the Narnia books. I loved Harriet the Spy because, you know, she was a writer and I sort of thought I would want to be a writer. And so, you know, super into stuff like that. Then I got a little bit older and I was very into music, which was like, to me, a window onto a world that was very different from where I lived in Northern Virginia. And I have a lot of fond feelings about growing up in Virginia, but I also was like, literally the only Jewish person that I knew, the only person who had divorced parents. I was living just with my mom and didn't know anybody else like that and definitely felt like I didn't quite have my tribe and was looking on some level forward to like getting out and going to someplace that felt a little more cosmopolitan and and diverse. And I remember there was a radio station in the DC area, WHFS, which was like the alternative 80s music. And I was so into them and had the bumper sticker on the bumper of my first car, a really beat up Honda Civic. And I like loved the Eurythmics and tried to get everybody in my high school to listen to the Eurythmics. And they were like, shut up. We don't know what you're talking about. Just put top 40 back on. Anyway, so that like really influenced me. And then a little bit later, yes, I became a sort of super fan of Bruce Springsteen, like 80s Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, this was before the internet. And if the album that you bought didn't come with liner notes, the only way to actually figure out what all the lyrics were was to like sit there as I did and listen to every line on a record player and write it all down. So yes, I transcribed The Wild, The Innocent, The East Street Shuffle, which um, don't, don't do that. That's incredible. The first time you told me that story, I just thought, geez, there seems to be this connection between the most brilliant journalists that I know and fanishness. Those people are, are really curious. There are so many qualities in fandom that are also necessary in journalism. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that through the lens of a character named Brenda Starr, who was the star of Brenda Starr Reporter. Tell me a little bit about Brenda Starr, because this is something that I was not familiar with before you told me about it. But when I asked different people, I would ask millennials and they didn't get it, but I would ask Gen Xers and, and boomers and, and they really knew this character and this this comic. So tell me about Brenda Starr. 
Well, I think like by the time I came to her, she had definitely, I don't want to say she had seen better days, but like, <laughs> but like, I think she was really popular long before that. I think she was very popular sort of in like the fifties and sixties. And she was one of these comic strips that just ran in the back of so many newspapers. And so this is me like, you know, around like 1980 or so reading the comics that were in the Washington Post, which is hard to picture. The Washington Post like actually ran comic strips. So just a little bit about who she was. She was this character who was a reporter. Her name was Brenda Starr. She had bright red hair, the reddest red, you know, bright orange hair. She had the most fabulous wardrobe. And she worked at a newspaper that was supposedly based in Chicago that I think was called The Flash. And I just was completely enamored with everything about her. I was, you know, I was really into writing. And, you know, when I got a little older, I always worked on the school newspaper. So that idea of journalism was really cool to me. She had that like Harriet the Spy quality with a notebook, but she also had this fantastic wardrobe. And that was kind of exotic for me because my mom was a brilliant woman and was a biochemist, but definitely had a sort of absent-minded professor aesthetic, like didn't care at all about makeup, didn't care at all about fashion or clothes. I mean, she literally possessed like this one container of blush by a brand called Janet Sarton that I don't think is around anymore. (laughs) She owned it for like 20 years. It was like the only makeup she used. And so that whole kind of like glamour and, you know, the world of fashion and beauty was definitely something that was not familiar to me and I didn't have in my home. And so I just loved that Brenda Starr had the like journalism part, but she also had just these really great clothes. I loved the comic strips so much. And it was only years later. Oh, she also, by the way, like, of course she had the super happening love life and her husband was this guy (laughs) named Basil St. John. I think they like got divorced and they got back together and he had an eye patch, but he was nice. He wasn't like a bad boy. He just (laughs) had kind of like a bad boy aesthetic. And they had a little kid named Twinkle Star. I mean, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. um, But anyway, it was only like much later after, I mean, I kind of ended up in women's magazines and fashion magazines by accident. I had worked at magazines all through my college summers and so forth, but then I thought I was going to go to graduate school and get a PhD in English lit, and I had gotten this fellowship to do it, and I decided I would move to New York for a year to take a job to work at a magazine because I just thought it would be like a fun break between college and graduate school. And I got an entry-level editorial assistant job at Glamour Magazine because it was in the same building as Mademoiselle, which was a magazine that I actually read and loved. And I started working and just like loved it. And I was like, wait a second, I'm working at a fashion magazine. Aren't I supposed to be like getting my PhD in English lit? But I really loved it. I loved the people. They were so smart. And it was only like after a couple of years, I was like, oh my God, I am living the Brenda Star life. I actually have a day where I'm like talking to journalists and my admiration for her wardrobe is something that is like a a skill that's like something that I now, you know, actually work in. And anyway, so it wasn't until a lot later that I realized that maybe on some level, she had kind of imprinted on me as a career role model in some way. 
I will say that it was really hard to find a lot of information about Brenda Starr. I was looking even, I know you're on the board of the Brooklyn Public Library and I'm an active patron. I could not find very much at all there about Brenda Starr. No, I mean, it's interesting. Most of the Brenda Starr stuff that I have and like in my office, I actually do have in addition to this beautiful glass where you can see her perfect red hair and her really cool androgynous colleague, Hank, who was a woman, um, but who had a really kind of happening. And I think now we would say like non-binary sort of aesthetic going on. You know, in addition to that, I also have some framed stuff. I have framed comic strips here showing her at work. In this case, I think she's fending off a romantic advance by the mayor of Chicago. Um, And her boss is encouraging her not to turn him down because he's so important. And she's like, you know, yelling at her boss and then getting Hank to walk her, her female friend Hank, to walk her home. And in case the mayor is camped out on her doorstep, she can, you know, have protection against him. So like there are all the issues happening there back in whatever year that thing was published. Um, But I will say the only reason I have that stuff is that like I must have said in an interview once somewhere, you know, published interview like 10 years ago that I loved Brenda Starr and that she was like an early kind of icon to me. And all of a sudden, like somebody, a writer I knew spotted these framed Brenda Starr panels at a yard sale and sent them to me. And I even at one point heard from a descendant of the original cartoonist, Dale Messick, who was producing a play based on Brenda, uh, It is hard to find, but she had a great, and I think before her time, sensibility. I wanted to follow up on that comic, that framed strip that you just presented and and explained. You talked about Brenda facing harassment in the workplace. I'm wondering if there are any other issues that were covered in, in those comics that you remember that kind of matched up to what your experience or what other women's experiences in journalism would be like? Great question. I mean, I'm not sure it was the most like accurate representation of what it was like to be an investigative reporter. <laughs> Although I do just think like the pleasure that she took in her job You know, and this was being published at a time when like women weren't really expected to have career ambitions of any kind. So I do think there's something like pretty cool and breakthrough about that. I mean, I remember, yeah, she had like men hitting on her. I mean, it definitely wasn't called harassment and it wasn't really called the workplace. It was just like her daily life. She would go about her business and people would kind of underestimate her or, you know, as in this framed strip that I've got, they would, you know, hit on her and um, either try to seduce her or dismiss her. So I think there's like clearly some accuracy there. She, um, you know, seemed to, to the best of my recollection, which should be the like caveat for this entire interview. (laughs) The best of my recollection, she kind of stood up for it, didn't let it undermine her and saw it as kind of, saw it as kind of wrong. She also had a lot of female friends, which I think is, you know, certainly relevant and, you know, and accurate. She had this, she had a bunch of women, I think, in the newsroom, but Hank is the one that stood out to me because she also had great style, as I said, like sort of a more androgynous way of dressing. There was often a little beret and she always wore suits and there was sometimes a tie. Um, and so I do think that sense of women supporting each other, you know, in the workplace and coming together against whatever they were up against clearly feels that feels accurate. Mm-hmm. So I have to tell you, and I promise that this connects back to Brenda Starr. 
I recently went to Vegas to see Weekends with Adele. It cost me half of my life savings. I'm just kidding. But um, no, no, it was great. Um, was it worth it? Oh, it was absolutely worth it. And I was so happy. It was on my bucket list. If, if, if something is on my bucket list, I will save up and just splurge on it. Oh, um, my God. Because, because I need I to just know the set to. list. Tell me the set list. Um, I, will, I will send you the set list and, and we can talk about it. But the most baller move. I mean, there were so many funny things that Adele did that connected her to the audience. She had a t-shirt gun and she was like shooting t-shirts out into the audience and she walked around the entire um, orchestra floor and sang when we were young. And I think one of my favorite things about the show was at the very end after, you know, the curtains came down and, you know, after the end, the music that she played on the way out for people was um, the wear sunscreen monologue. Do you remember oh, that? Yes, it was course. a Yeah. It was a Baz Luhrmann music video with a spoken word. Yeah. Like it was spoken word poetry with with music. I remember from the and- 90s. From the 90s. And so my husband actually had never heard this before. I said, oh, that's where sunscreen. They played it for us in high school. And I still think about it all the time. If you haven't heard it, it's like a monologue of advice to to young high school or college graduates. And it was often um, misattributed to Kurt Vonnegut, who said that he wished he had written it. And I think a lot of people think that it was written by a man because in the music video it's narrated by a man but actually it was written for the chicago tribune in an article called advice like youth probably just wasted on the young and the writer was mary schmeek who was the longtime writer of brenda Starr. yeah she was the second writer the original creator of brenda Starr was dale messick for many decades. And I think Mary Schmeek took it over maybe in like the mid eighties or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But yeah, she was an incredible writer. That was a beautiful monologue. I actually remember being like a baby editorial assistant in the nineties at Glamour and writing a piece about how she was the actual author of this thing that everybody was crediting to Kurt Vonnegut. Oh my God. I had no idea that you wrote this kind of piece and I want to read it if we can somehow find it in the Glamour archives. That is such Good a luck. Co- <laughs> Yeah, that's such a coincidence because my question for you was going to be, do you have any thoughts on this assumption of the writer being a man? And how have you seen women's ownership of their journalism change over the years? Hmm. Um, I mean, yes, like I think, you know, assuming that the writer of anything of value or cultural dominance as a man is probably that's something that has been around for a long time. I think it's changed somewhat. And I think that was also sort of about not appropriation, because like, I'm sure Baz Luhrmann had whatever credits he needed to make that, but like people kind of assuming it was his, which is something that we see with men and women, and also like white people and people of color using, you know, using work that has started in another area or another community and kind of bringing it to, you know, bringing it to a, a quote unquote, more mainstream audience that happens clearly a lot still. I think to that question of like authorship, I think one of the challenges is that, and this is true for any group that was once marginalized in an industry, um, a little change gets perceived as 
a lot of change by the more dominant group. Let me give you an example from like a totally different area. The Gina Davis Institute, which started by the actress Gina Davis, does all this incredible research on gender in film. They found that when people looked at a crowd scene in a film, if there were just a small percentage of women in that crowd, it was perceived as a 50% female crowd. And I think the same happens in workplaces or boards or other bodies that have at one point been all male or all white or all one thing. As soon as they become the teeniest bit more diverse, people perceive it as like, oh my gosh, it's so diverse now. And, and you know, consequently, the assumption is like our work is done. So another example of that is, in 1992, there was this so-called year of the woman in politics, right? Where all these women basically listened to Anita Hill's testimony and were like, we can do better than this 14 all white men committee that just grilled this woman. We're going to run for office. So a lot of women ran for office, record numbers, record numbers were elected to Congress. Mind you, record numbers were elected to Congress, but it was still less than 10% women. And on the first day of that Congress, Pat Schroeder, who was a congresswoman from Colorado at the time, was on the floor, and some older guy said to her, Pat, it's just like a shopping mall in here today. And she said, I don't know any shopping mall that is only 10% women. And, you know, the point is like, you're perceiving this as like women are overrunning things. And I think that's sort of like, to me, that's sort of where we are now with media that like, there is this temptation to say like, oh, because we've tried to increase in newsrooms and in the media industry, the representation of women. And then, you know, I think more significantly, because this is a much more acute issue now, I think the proportion of journalists of color or media executives of color, and because there's a tiny bit more representation than there used to be, sometimes now there's just this idea that we're done. And we're totally not done. The media industry trails so many other industries globally in terms of representation of women, and especially women of color, in senior roles. So I'm not sure that answers your question about um, where sunscreen <laughs> <laughs> A, wear sunscreen and B, look at bylines and try to read works by women and especially women of color. Yeah, actually yesterday, as, as of this recording, but yesterday I gave a talk at my alma mater, Tufts University's Tisch College of Civic Life about fandom and fan activism. And moderator asked me, you know, what's the advice that you have for, for our students today? And I, the first things I said were drink water, drink water and wear sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and watch the wear sunscreen monologue is, is probably my my addendum to that. Yeah. But speaking... I have a question for you. Oh. What when you say fan activism, like what 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 do you mean by that exactly? What is fan activism? Fan activism is and this by the way, this is a fan activist podcast hosted by Fandom Forward. So All right. yeah, you know, I think most of our listeners know fan activism, but but fan well, activism we can skip is it if you no, think no, 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 it's okay. Know. In, in the talk that I gave yesterday, I started by saying that before we can define fan activism, we really have to define what a fan is, because there's a spectrum of fandom. On one side, you have, which is most people, um, you know, fandom is synonymous with consumerism. So you go to see a Marvel movie, you buy tickets to Disney World so you can go to the Star Wars $5,000 a weekend um, 
live action role play experience. You you do like consumerist things. Um, But then there's this whole other fandom world that's writing fan fiction, copying down liners of songs, things like that, or dressing up in cosplay or reimagining characters of your favorite films as queer or people of color because or disabled because you belong to one of those groups. So it's really about, you know, what are the stories that have taken hold, like taken hold of your heart and shaped the person that you are? And the fan activist part is engaging those fans on on activist causes through those stories. So like um Fandom Forward hosted last summer a big pride event through the theme of the show Our Flag Means Death, which is the um, gay pirate show on HBO with Taika Waititi. And we got all of these fans, like 400 fans together for this programming about the themes of queer rights in the show. But then we had those same fans take actions to call elected officials and write letters to offices. Um, They wanted to call in and oppose anti-LGBTQ legislation around the country, which I believe as of today... The ACLU says that there are 124 active bills like that this year alone. And it's not even March yet. Like, calm down. Right. And so fan activism is a pretty broad. It's like a broad definition because it can also be like the Taylor Swift fans. Like when Taylor Swift said to her fans, get out to vote in Tennessee. And then that actually corresponded to a shift in, in like voter turnout in Tennessee. That's a type of fan activism as well. Got it. Thank you. Sorry yeah. if that was like remedial, <laughs> but, it, no, but no, that, no, it's, no, it's so okay. interesting. I just wasn't sure how much of it was like political activism. And yeah, it's, I think that's, that's great. It's, it's mostly political activism, although it can also be like disaster relief, hunger relief, things that are like community, civic engagement, you know, like oriented towards community in a nonpartisan way. Right. I'm really excited about it. I'm kind of, um, this has become my whole thing. And I'm like the person who goes on television to talk about fan activism whenever anyone wants to talk about yeah. it. So wow. Well yeah. if we're talking about like also sort of activist causes around the things that we're fans of. Like I feel like if Brenda Starr, if Mary Schmeek or somebody else was still writing Brenda Starr, I do think one of the things she would be, it wouldn't just be about like the mayor hitting on her. It would be about like online harassment because that is the big thing that women journalists face now yeah like you open up I'm on the board of the International Women's Media Foundation and it's like they used to do trainings for women who were going into conflict zones like physical Mm -hmm. safety and how to fight back and all of that and now they do they still do that but they do trainings for how do you deal with online violence because that's become the number one complaint by women Mm -hmm. journalists around the world like you open up your laptop and you are just subjected to the most vile and often like truly dangerous, you know, whether it's stalking, doxing, you know, just terrible hate speech, it's really rough and it's gotten a lot worse over the last five years. So Mm -hmm. um, if we're being activists, go support the International Women's Media Foundation, which really helps women who are going through the worst of it just in order to be able to do their jobs. And speaking of women's representation in in media and generally, are there any contemporary movies or TV shows that you think are contributing significantly to the image of women in journalism right now? Hmm. 
Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I did, I was really glad to see She Said, which came out last year, director Maria Schrader telling the story of Jodi Cantor and Megan Tuohy at the New York Times, only because like they were kind of being made heroic for those who might not know, they're two of the reporters who broke the Weinstein story. They broke it for the New York Times and Ronan Farrow also reported for, and Jane Mayer reported for the New Yorker. And they had been tracking Harvey Weinstein, you know, in this very dramatic way. And of course that reporting was then what kind of created the modern hashtag Me Too movement, mm-hmm. building on the work that Tarana Burke had been doing for over a decade. And at any rate, I mean, I think, you know, the ripple effect of Me Too, even though people think of it as like something that happened in the past, you know, that was five years ago, it's really just starting to be felt. There's still so much work that needs to be done. And I think we're only kind of at the beginning of seeing the changes that it generated. Anyway, long way of saying like, that's a hugely significant kind of heroic journalistic act. And I don't know that I had seen a film before that kind of glamorized and lionized that work by women in the same way that like, if you ever saw, you know, All the President's Men or Spotlight, those films build up the work of, you know, male reporters and and editors. And so I was just really pleased to see, to see that and see that work by women and its significance get its due. Also, because like, it's really hard to report those stories. It takes a lot of time. You know, editors are not always supportive of their reporters taking months to go report out a case, especially if it's somebody who is less, you know, sort of glamorous than Harvey Weinstein. And um, even now, I think a lot of reporters are finding that editors are not always encouraging about their doing that work for a whole bunch of different reasons. You know, some cases now they're like, oh, well, that those were the big stories a couple of years ago, go chase something else. And so I think anything that kind of lifts that up is is good. Yeah. And I can't imagine where we would be without, she said, without Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy's reporting. You know, we would see Harvey Weinstein probably in a very different light or we just wouldn't think about him that much at all if not for for that coverage and that reporting and and certainly all of the women who came forward to tell their stories but um before those stories could really be told and before it could be litigated these women had to trust these two women with their stories so yeah um, the importance can't be overstated right and i think that was also some of the reporting that first helped people understand why people who are victims of sexual assault or harassment stay in touch with their abuser. I mean, if you look at like, go back to Anita Hill, who accused Clarence Thomas back in 1991, you know, people said, well, why did you stay working for him if he was this awful to you? And there was this like idea that if you didn't immediately sever all ties with this person, which of course you might not do for a whole bunch of different reasons, like you work for them or you know, they have power over you or they're financing the film that you're about to star in, you know, whatever it is, then, you know, well, your, your story, you know, the thinking was like, your story is not legitimate. And I do think that that the reporting that they did on women who were assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, but kept in touch with him professionally for a lot of different reasons, helped people understand that that is incredibly, incredibly common. 
And that actually brings me to Lord of the Rings. And I know you're probably like, what does this have to do with Lord of the Rings? But because you're this is tell me. <laughs> because this is a Lord of the Rings themed podcast where I actually haven't spoken about it that much, but we're kind of living. I'm pretending that this little closet that I'm decorating and, and in the middle of putting together for my podcast um, is like a hobbit hole. Um, that's that's what the, well, the Shire side name. Yes, they, they yes. We we are trying to pretend that we live in the Shire and, and these are our lives and we're not constantly trying to be at Inbox Zero. This week, I had the pleasure of attending the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring performance at Radio City Music Hall. It was the film presented in full for like three and a half hours with an orchestra uh, performing the score. So you could see the movie and you could hear the score. And what was so fun about that was being in communion with all of these fans, thousands of fans who were screaming and cheering on their favorite characters and laughing at all the jokes that, you know, would become memes eventually. And it was this amazing shared experience. But the thing that I was most proud of and happiest about, you know, participating with that fandom was at the very end of the movie. And this is something I always forget but the film is produced, executive produced by Harvey Weinstein and a bunch of people and especially this one guy just booed, like booed very loudly. And I found myself booing with a th like thousands of people at Harvey Weinstein. And I just really appreciate that we live in that I am part of this fandom where the people who are part of it both appreciate positive masculinity, which is what that film is a representation of, in my opinion, but also we can boo a really negative um, representation of masculinity. I feel safer knowing that all these guys around me are booing a rapist. Yeah, yeah, I get that. No, that's like, it's incredibly, it's probably part of what ties you to that fandom, right? Because yeah. it's not just like the story that you're all fans of, it's the feeling of community and that feeling of, of safety. Yeah, and also it's just men doing really cool going on a quest together and the women you know yes there could be more women in these films but the women who are are totally badass so more to come on lord of the rings in future episodes yeah but, you're gonna yeah. have to find a different guest for that for that because <laughs> i am so like lord of the rings illiterate i'm sorry i hope that doesn't i, I no. don't have to get me out of the shire but no not at all anyone is welcome who has a good heart and and is an activist or a leader. So <laughs> there you go. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Shireside Chats. Sabrina, thank you for having me here in the Shire. Shireside Chats is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Tai and Krista Avampato, and of course, to our lovely Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism in your community, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>